Welcome to Mafia, a new podcast telling stories of America's criminal underworld. Gotti assumed the position of head of the Gambino family. And using the name Donnie Brasco, I was able to infiltrate the uh, Bonanno uh, crime family in New York City. Bugsy Siegel is an American mob legend. One man changed the whole texture and landscape of crime in America. Listen to Mafia every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello again, and thank you for joining us on Space Nuts, the astronomy podcast uh, with uh, Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory and uh, me, your host, Andrew Dunkley. G'day, Fred. How are you? Uh, I'm very well, thank you, Andrew. How, how are you going? I'm extremely well, uh, <laughs> going through this autumnal slash winter period in the Southern Hemisphere. It's starting to cool off at last. It's been a long, long, long summer. Yeah, you're looking, if I may say so, you're looking very dapper there with your, your winter winter jacket on and uh, look as though you're set for the climate. <laughs> yes, it's uh, these last couple of days have been the, the coolest we've had this year so far, but uh, looking looking ahead, it's actually not going to stay that way. It's going to get warmer again, so yeah, it's, gonna get warmer it's been very strange. Mm. But um, that aside, today we're going to look at a, a few interesting things that are uh, on the planet and off the planet. A major announcement as a result of uh, discoveries by the Kepler telescope, and, and we're talking hundreds and hundreds of exoplanets, which uh, is just uh, fascinating. We've been talking about exoplanets for, uh, for a while now, but uh, they just keep finding more and more, and now they've found just a massive swag of them. Uh, we're also going to look at Earth's magnetic field because uh, they're studying it very intently to try and understand um, what's happening with it and why it does what it does. Uh, but more to the point, um, it, it may be on the verge of doing something very strange, which is its north-south switch, uh, which we'll talk about. And uh, bubbles in lava flows that have been studied um, over in uh, Western Australia in a very remote area that we know of as the Pilbara and uh, what they think that means in terms of uh, Earth's uh, atmosphere in the past and uh, comparing it to the present. All that to come on Space Nuts. First, Fred, exoplanets. And the Kepler telescope has um, just uh, discovered uh, just a whole raft of, of new planets to add to the uh, ever-growing list of, of planets outside our own solar system. Yeah, and y you can sort of understand why this happens. The Kepler mission is now no longer looking for exoplanets um, because of, uh, actually because of a failure in the um, mechanisms of the spacecraft itself. It, it has been redeployed, uh, but in a rather cunning way to use the, the radiation pressure of the sun to stabilise it rather than its reaction wheels. But that limits where it can point. So its original mission uh, really uh, took place uh, between 2009 and 2013. Uh, and here's Mandu, just come to throw his ten penneth into the conversation. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, a couple of meows there. Uh, so um, what, what Kepler did during that period was basically stared at uh, a, a region of sky, uh, looking at a fairly wide angle, and um, um, re basically recording the images of 100,000 stars, more or less continuously. So you're looking at these stars all the time, and what you're trying to seek 
is any tiny dip in the intensity of the light from each star, uh, which could be caused by a planet passing in front of the disk of the star or transiting, to use the, the technical term. And so um, the, the, the planetary transit method is turning out to be a very, very successful way of discovering uh, planets. But when you think about it, um, one dip uh, in the intensity of light from a star is not enough because that doesn't tell you anything. It tells you that something has dimmed the light. It's only when you start seeing repeated passages of the same planet uh, in front of the star that you, uh, you actually can... Uh, basically uh, hypothesize that there's a planet there uh, and then you've got to have you know various other um, uh, factors thrown into this that give you the level of confidence that's required to declare that yes this is a planet and that's why Kepler has um, produced this huge list of candidate planets there's more more than 4,000 on it but um, over time, they've, they've only released, um, you, you know, um, uh, small fractions of that number because you've only got the certainty in that small number that there is a planet there. And so the, the, the new uh, announcement, which was made uh, a few weeks ago, uh, is a new catalogue of 1,284 confirmed planets detected by Kepler. And that actually more, more than doubles what, they, what they'd announced before. It's um, remarkable because with, with 1,200 objects, you can start doing statistical surveys on what kind of planets you've got there and kind of dividing them up into, into the various categories, including the really interesting ones, the Earth-sized ones. Um, we, uh, we see that there's more than 100 Earth-sized ones in this uh, 1,284 uh, planet catalogue. And then even more interesting, the ones that sit within their parent stars habitable zones the goldilocks zone where it's not too hot not too cold but where just there right. would be liquid water, water that's, right. Mm. Um, that's right so there's i think there's nine in this present hall that sit within their parent stars goldilocks zone that's not a bad statistical anomaly i suppose but uh, what's really fascinating is that they've they've taken these calculations even further to try and forecast how many uh, potentially habitable planet, planets there might be in the Milky Way, and it, and it starts to reach astronomical numbers. <laughs> Indeed, yes, that's right. 10 billion is what they're suggesting. Yes. So 10 billion potentially habitable planets. Um, the, we think there are about 400 billion stars in, in the Milky Way galaxy, very roughly. So that's, you know, that's, um, that is a, a, a reasonable fraction of that, uh, of that number. Um, the, uh, the, the, the other... I guess the other interesting statistic is that um, of the stars surveyed so far, about a quarter of them potentially uh, harbour habitable planets. Now, what, one, of the, one of the interesting aspects of this is that uh, the smaller planets are the, the more difficult ones to discover. And, um, you know, if you've got a, a, a star that is fairly large, a small planet transiting across its disk produces a very, very small dip in the intensity of the star. It's one that can still be measured, but it's a lot easier to miss the smaller planets than the bigger ones. So as time goes on, we will no doubt see these statistics confirmed. Um, and, and that uh, really is is uh, a very interesting uh, idea that, you know, something like um, a quarter of, of stars might have potentially habitable planets around them. Um, there's, a, there's a magic number thrown into this mix as well, which is 1.6 times 
the, the diameter of the Earth. Anything smaller than that is likely to be a rocky planet rather mm. than a gas planet. And that means it has a surface, uh, maybe has an atmosphere like we have, uh, maybe has, uh, you know, if it's in the habitable zone, maybe has stable liquid water on it. It's, it's all great stuff. Um, it, it really paves the way, Andrew, for what's coming next which is the next generation of big telescopes, the so-called ELTs, the Extremely Large Telescopes. Um, that they, uh, There are three of them on the stocks. Uh, hopefully, they will be at least providing partial observations within, within the next decade, uh, maybe even better than that, because the, 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 the effort to build these things is really ramping up. Uh, but those uh, planets will be... Sorry, those, star those telescopes will be capable of separating the planet from its parent star. In other words, seeing the planets directly rather than just inferring their presence by a dimming of starlight. And once you can do that, you can uh, do a spectral analysis, this magic trick where we spread the light into its rainbow colors and look for um, the telltale biomarkers, the markers in the atmosphere of a star that tell you that there is something other than just pure chemistry going on, um, you know, processes that are actually uh, involved with biological uh, phenomena. So yes. things like oxygen, water vapor, uh, carbon dioxide, methane, perhaps, all these things are, are, are potential biomarkers if you pick them up in the right quantities. Yes, it is really fascinating, and, and that's going to be uh, quite extraordinary when we start getting that kind of data back. It also makes me kind of ponder probably more towards the science fiction now, but uh, ultimately, if humanity's still around, a time will come where we will send people out to explore if the technology is uh, in existence. And like we did with Earth, we, we, we spread out and we colonised. And I imagine that ultimately that may be a factor in space. And I, I, we've adapted to this planet and there's nothing to say that going to another planet somewhere is going to be very easy because everything will be different. The atmosphere, the, the, um, the, the length of a day, the length of a year, the, you know, it would be a very difficult transition to make because you can't just suddenly... You know, you'd have space lag or something for a long, long time. <laughs> yeah, space lag. You, you know, we we complain about a um, 24-hour flight to Europe, but with space lag, you're talking about, um, well, maybe even hundreds of years. I was having yes. a discussion uh, last night with uh, a very well-known science fiction writer, Sean Williams. We were talking about the prospects for um, for kind of people hibernating on these long space flights. You, you lower their temperature down so that their their body goes into this state of suspended animation but it's a topic beloved of science fiction writers but well it was portrayed is... pretty significantly in the movie interstellar where they, um, they submerged them in liquid and slept for years yeah and indeed in 2001 a space odyssey yes. happened in there as well so mm -hmm. uh, 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 it's and uh, but it, that is approaching reality you know it may be that we see phenomena like this taking place and being used uh, to make the um, the 400 year journey to uh, wherever you're going a bit a bit less um, a bit less uh, uh, disruptive yes and it's, it's probably not beyond the realms of possibility again assuming humanity survives that we will ultimately have to move and the most likely candidate if we can terraform it would be mars indeed that's right um i am um, i'm a bit of a terraforming skeptic when it comes to mars sorry uh, um, my um the, the cat is just exploring my lunch here so i'm just moving uh, <laughs> they tend to do that yeah they do yeah uh, <laughs> from the sublime to the ridiculous um i i um, I, I mean mars is such an interesting world and of course there is uh 
there, there is the possibility of indigenous life on Mars, uh, maybe only microbial life, but something that um, is of great interest to researchers to, 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 to look for the origins of life and find out whether, if we do find microbial life on Mars, whether it is, you know, has a different origin from the microbial life on the Earth, a so-called second genesis. We uh, await the answers to the questions like that with very great interest. Indeed. You're listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and astronomer Fred Watson. Okay, we checked all four systems and team with a go. Space Nuts. Now, Fred, we're going to uh, look at the analysis of the Earth's magnetic field, which um, probably sounds a little bit mundane and perhaps boring, but it, it is rather a, a fascinating um, uh, study because we're starting to try and understand the magnetic field and what it does and how it works and, and why it does what it does. But what's really fascinating, which we can talk about uh, a little bit later, is is the, the way it switches. It just suddenly reverses itself, which it hasn't done for a long time. And, and, and because of current understanding, they're starting to think that it might be getting close to doing that again. I know I've uh, heard people talking about it for you know on and off for years but um now we're starting to get data back that suggests that may well happen but we're talking about a series of satellites the swarm satellites that are that are looking into the uh, behavior of our magnetic field and why it does what it does what are they learning from this um the, the main thing that's been learned is just how dynamic the magnetic field is how how much it varies and really how rapidly it varies so um yes th this uh, trio of three satellites in a swarm, which is why it's called the Swarm Mission. Um, three satellites at, uh, actually in slightly different orbits, which are essentially sensing the magnetic field. It's a European Space Agency mission. Uh, and the, um, the, the, the satellites, are, they've actually only been in orbit, I think, since 2013, if I remember rightly. Uh, but they are um, adding to our store of knowledge, uh, which has been gathered over the previous decade and a half, of how the Earth's magnetic field behaves. And as you say, um, it, it suggests that the field is, is changing, that it may be getting weaker. Uh, we know um, from the geological record, particularly from um, the, the magnetic fields of rocks uh, deep under the, under the bed of the ocean, uh, that um, uh, on average uh, you get one or two changes in the polarity of the Earth's magnetic field every million years or so. Mm. So there's this, uh, this propensity for the Earth's magnetic field to flip uh, so that the North magnetic pole becomes the South magnetic pole and vice versa. Now, um, before we go any further, we've really got to um, uh, uh, you know, nail down the, any false impressions about this because the Earth will not turn upside down. <laughs> it's, not, it's not about the... The, the, the true poles of the Earth, the, the rotation axis of the Earth is very, very stable indeed. And um, so the North Pole will stay the North Pole, the South Pole will stay the South Pole, but the magnetic poles can shift. Um, and that uh, we, we know from studies, I mean, when I was at school, we, we knew that the, the North magnetic pole was changing in position. And so you had to put a date on, on, on it whenever you were talking about the offset of the magnetic pole from the true pole. Uh, and that's uh, really, uh, I guess it's that idea that has been extended and refined uh, almost beyond belief by our present understanding. So I, I guess um, one of the things that's coming from the swarm mission 
uh, is, as I said, the, the, the way the field strengthens and weakens over time and what sort of speeds that takes place at. Uh, and what they are learning from this is really how the uh, outer core of the planet, that's to say the, uh, the, the body of liquid iron that surrounds a solid iron core uh, that is sort of 3,000 kilometers under our feet, but that uh, molten core of the Earth is actually what generates the, the magnetic field. And it's, it's material sort of sloshing around in that that gives rise to it. And, and variations in that are what, tell you, what show up as variations in the magnetic field. So one of, um, one of the scientists involved in this project, I, I think he's put it uh, really very well. Um, I'm interested in using swarm data to see what's happening down in the planet's molten outer core where fluid motions are generating this field. For me, this is real Earth exploration because we, so, we know so very little about what is going on in that place. This is Chris Finlay from the Technical University of, of Denmark. Um, we, so so this, uh, this work with these satellites is a way of probing things that are going on deep uh, within the Earth's core and a, a region where you, know, you, can't, you can't explore it because you're talking about liquid, uh, liquid iron, you can't explore it directly. You've got to infer it from either seismic measurements or uh, this kind of magnetic measurement. Um, and there's, there's other real subtleties as well. The, the, the spacecraft, um, the, the swarm spacecraft respond to the magnetism that's sort of embedded in the rocks of the Earth, in, in, the, in the crust. And, and even uh, the really uh, almost unexpected effect, but it provides a real signal, the way salt water in the oceans moves around, because salt mm. water has magnetic properties. So as you see this water moving around, it affects the magnetic field of the Earth. Yes, and, and I, I mean, we're, we're only talking about a few elements of this. It is much more complex than we're talking about. This, this anomaly is, is highly variable, has strengths and weaknesses, is ever-changing. Uh, it, it can impact on all sorts of things over short and long periods of time. It, it can impact on electronics and aircraft. And, yes. you know, there's, there's just so many things that this has um, a bearing on. And, and I suppose the, the thing that people don't really think about much is that this magnetic field is basically keeping us alive. Um, that's right, yes, because it, it does shield the Earth from the, the, um, the stream of subatomic particles that comes from the sun. It, it uh, deflects them and, um, you know, basically uh, protects the, the environment of the Earth. We, we might have evolved in such a way that um, we could withstand that had it not been for the magnetic field, but um, it's, it's, um, it, it's, it's a very important part of Earth's uh, attributes. Uh, and so um, you might think that... Um, the fact that we know that the magnetic field is weakening could be bad news on Earth. <laughs> um, because uh, what's happening is the measurements that have been made actually uh, over time, I think direct me measurements of the magnetic field of the Earth have been made for about 150 years. But you can look back at the historical magnetic field. I know that um, uh, the, the magnetism that's um, encased in Roman pottery uh, gives you an idea of what things were like 2,000 years ago. And it's from those measurements that people are inferring that the magnetic field is weakening. And maybe, um, I, I don't know whether this is still current, but I read a few years ago that um, uh, it's expected that possibly in as little as 1,500 years, it might effectively disappear. Uh, and that could be a precursor to a, a reversal. Mm. 
What is not the case, though, and I'm assured by this, uh, about this by one of the experts on cosmic mag magnetism who I know, um, the Earth's magnetic field will not just vanish altogether because the magnetic field of the sun actually induces its own magnetic field within the Earth. So hopefully we will still be protected from bombardment by subatomic particles by the, the magnetism of the sun uh, combining with or inducing a magnetic field within the Earth. It's all fascinating and it's complicated. Stuff, it? and I've got a headache, but uh, <laughs> well, you will have if we get bombarded by subatomic <laughs> particles. True. Yes, uh, well, we'll watch this with interest. I'm sure there'll be a lot more data to come. You're listening to Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here, and Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. Space Nuts. Finally, Fred, we're going to look at air bubbles trapped in lava. Now, this is a study that's uh, being fo uh, been focusing on the Pilbara region, which is a, a very remote and beautiful region of Western Australia. And uh, they've, they've made a, a pretty amazing discovery, um, which uh, I'm going to let you explain. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you, you know, once again, we're focusing on our own planet here, but um, it, it is very much looking at the planet as a planet because uh, you need the astronomical information to, to try and understand what, what the geology is telling you. And uh, as you said, there are um, studies that have been recently been made, uh, scientists, if I remember rightly, in the University of uh, Western Australia and elsewhere, uh, of ancient lava flows in the Pilbara region. These are... Uh, lava flows that uh, were, were molten 2.7 billion years ago. Uh, that's more than half the age of the Earth. The Earth's about 4.6 billion years. Uh, so what is interesting about them is that the scientists have found air bubbles trapped in these lava flows, uh, and they um, have a story to tell, as nearly everything does when you look at it closely enough. Um, the, first, the first thing that is interesting is that these lava flows have uh, a signal within them that tells you that they flowed onto a beach. Um, and that in itself tells you that uh, the Earth uh, at, its, at that time, 2.7 billion years ago, had a benign temperature. It had a temperature high enough for liquid water to mm. exist. Um, in fact, we see other evidence from the just the, the, the geomorphology of the landscape. You know, you see evidence of ancient riverbeds and, and, and indeed beaches and things of that sort, which can only be sustained when there are liquids uh, uh, on the on the surface of the Earth. But um, so that says, yes, you've got a planet with a temperature whose um, average might be 15 degrees Celsius or something like that. Certainly not, not hot enough to boil away the water or or cold enough to freeze it solid. Um, but we know that the sun's radiation 2.7 billion years ago was about 20% less than it is now. And so the, uh, the current thinking is, well, if, it was, if the sun was um, uh, less in terms of its output, why wasn't the Earth frozen? Pretty nice, yeah. Yeah, and the, the answer that has been given for that uh, until now has been that the Earth has this thick blanket of greenhouse gases around it that protect it from the cold, that basically keep it warm. So a thick atmosphere, maybe a bit like uh, Venus has Venus, today. Venus effect, yeah. 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 Um, and that is why that is where these air bubbles come into the story, because they say, oh, no, the atmosphere was not thick then. Um, and what's happened is scientists have looked at air bubbles trapped 
uh, near the surface of the lava and compared them with air bubbles trapped underneath the lava and you know how much weight they have on top of them so you know how, how much they're being compressed. And they've used these, this information to, uh, to work out what the atmospheric pressure was. And it turns out that when this lava was laid down 2.7 billion years ago, the atmospheric pressure was only half what it is today. So the atmosphere was half as thick as it is now. Um, and that is a puzzle because we think we had this thick blanket of yes. air around us to keep the planet warm. Um, so, uh, the, the, you know, as, as with all uh, scientific results, uh, you find out something that makes you have to revisit something else. And what's being re revisited now is whether the, uh, you know, the atmosphere, uh, atmospheric constituents were what we thought they were. If the atmosphere was uh, richer in carbon dioxide, for example, than it is now, and richer in some of the other greenhouse gases, methane, for example, maybe that thinner blanket of air around the Earth was would have been enough to keep the planet warm. Mm. Um, and there are other possibilities as well. Maybe the Earth itself was warmer. Maybe the you know you know the residual um, nuclear uh, decay that's taking place still down in, deep in the Earth's crust. Maybe it was enough to keep the planet's surface warmer than uh, the, the, than we thought. But um, lots of hypotheses being thrown around to try and explain this apparently anomalous result. One of the great um, uh, conundrums of uh, looking at the Earth in space and looking at the what we know about the stars, our own star, the Sun, and trying to pull it all together to make sense of it so that you don't have contradictory items of information. Yes, and I'm sure, as with a lot of studies, they will um, start to unpick this one over time and, and, and raise even more weird and wonderful questions, and hopefully uh, some answers. Uh, maybe some answers, that's right. Yes. <laughs> Fred, as always, great to talk to you. Thank you to you and Mandu. Oh, yes. Good. Mandu's gone off in disgust because I, I wouldn't <laughs> let you food. speak on that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll, uh, we'll catch up with you again next week. Sounds great. Thanks very much. Andrew. That was Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. And from me, Andrew Dunkley, thank you for listening to Space Nuts. Don't forget to follow us. Uh, make sure you uh, uh, message us on Facebook. Got a great message the other day from somebody who uh, listens to us while they're canoeing up around, I think it was Grafton, and they have it on a speaker so everyone can hear it. So <laughs> that's <laughs> the sort of feedback we love. So uh, keep those messages coming, uh, Facebook, Twitter, and uh, don't forget to tell your friends and write some reviews on iTunes. We'd really love that. And we will catch up with you again next week. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audioboom, and Stitcher, or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com. Welcome to Mafia, a new podcast telling stories of America's criminal underworld. Gotti assumed the position of head of the Gambino family. And using the name Donnie Brasco, I was able to infiltrate the uh, Bonanno uh, crime family in New York City. Bugsy Siegel is an American mob legend. One man changed the whole texture and landscape of crime in America. Listen to Mafia every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows.